0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv I've really been looking forward to having the opportunity to interview today's guest, Esther Wojcicki, not only because she's an influential educator who has been dubbed the godmother of Silicon Valley, but also because we hit it off when we met randomly and recently at the ASU GSV summit. I know our listeners will learn a lot from her perspectives on education and learning. Esther is a sought after advisor and speaker who has led and supported a wide range of organizations involved in education, technology, and journalism. She's also a best-selling author on parenting and the co-founder of TRACT, an online community for student-directed learning but perhaps she's best known for raising three incredibly accomplished daughters, Anne, the CEO of 23andMe, who we recently had on the show, Janet, a prominent pediatrician and researcher at UCSF, and Susan, the CEO of YouTube. So Esther, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, I'd like to first start with learning more about you and your professional journey. How did your career begin?
1: Well, I started as a journalist when I was 14 years old. It's kind of crazy at the local newspaper, they needed somebody to help them out. It was kind of a girl Friday position. It was a group of men. It was in a little town called Sunland Tahanga. It was called the Sunland Tohunga Record Ledger. And it turns out that they had a lot of other interests. So they were just thrilled to have this girl who wanted to help them write. And so they trained me to write all sorts of things from sports to going to city council meetings to everything. And I had a great time and they paid me the grand total sum of three cents a word. And so, (laughs) but you can't imagine I earned quite a bit anyway, because I wanted to earn money and I wanted to write. So it was my beginnings of my journalism career. I went from there to the Los Angeles Times, where I wrote a column on what the teenagers were thinking in the Valley. And then from there, I went on to Berkeley. And I have a degree from the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley, but those are my humble beginnings.
0: That's awesome. Three cents a word is incredible how you started. Um, I remember my first like official journalism job was writing for MedGadget. And I think then we were doing 25 cents a word, which actually added up as a medical student. I was appreciative of it. And so you know, you're know, you also well known for running the journalism program at Palo Alto High School for, well, I think, 25 years now, I think, when we spoke. 40 uh, 40. Oh, my goodness. I'm way out of date. Um, How did you get interested in education, going from journalism to education? And can you tell us a bit more about that program? I know you're very proud of it for good reason. You've had some pretty amazing students.
1: Right. That's true. I actually started out being a journalist. You know, I wanted to be a writer. And back in the days when I started, which is in the 1960s and 70s, it turns out that the newspapers had three or four different sections. And one of them was called the women's section. So they had news and opinion and sports and women's section that was targeting women. And it had all kinds of information about doing your laundry, taking care of your kids and your husband and whatever. So when I went into journalism, they only wanted me to write for the women's section. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to write for the news section. And It was really tough. Breaking into journalism was very hard for a woman. As a matter of fact, I was not allowed to get into the San Francisco Press Club because I was a woman. And there were a lot of barriers. So I thought to myself, you know, after my kids were born, it's like, hey, I'll just teach journalism. If I can't be a journalist, I'll teach other kids to do it. And so that's how I started teaching at Palo Alto High School. I started with a program that had 20 kids in it. And they were using a book to learn how to do it and took me just a short period of time to realize that the kids were just as bored as I was. And so I said, I think I'm just going to throw away the book and I hope they don't notice. And um, shockingly enough, they didn't notice. But what they did notice is that the numbers in my classes were going up like mad. I started with 20 and the next year there was like 40 And they're like, oh, we've never seen anything like this. And then the year after that, there were even 60. And um, what I was doing is giving kids an opportunity to do real world stuff. What I did is pick up those newspapers that they give away, you know, the ones in the little newspaper box. Well, I took 30 of them every day. And the kids loved reading the newspapers. They loved doing things on their own. They loved being given a lot of responsibility. And so the program grew. And by 1998, there were 100 kids in the program, and they're like, we don't know what to do with you anymore. That's just too many. You can't do it, even though they had moved me into a lecture center because it was so big. So I said, well, how about if I start another publication? Why don't we just have two instead of one? I said, well, let's start a magazine. And they're like, magazine? High schools don't have magazines. They just have newspapers. I was like, well, how about this high school having a magazine? Anyway, they were a little skeptical. And so I had to start the magazine out of the back of the class. So I divided the class and some of the kids worked on the magazine. Some of them worked on the newspaper. And the first year we published it, it was called Verde. The first year we published it, we won a gold crown from Columbia. Top. And so then a school board and the principal said, wow, what a great idea. (laughs) Let's do a magazine. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'm really glad that you like it. And so that's where Verde started. And then I was able to hire another person to help. Another teacher came from Lowell High School in San Francisco, and his name's Paul Kandel. And so he came in as the teacher for Verde. And I should just, I can go through and tell you about all the other publications that grew through the years There's 10 of them now, um, including television and radio and online. And the program now has 700 kids and five other journalism teachers. So this method of teaching, which is empowering the kids, giving them an opportunity to make decisions, follow this acronym that I put in my book, which is Trick. And TRIC stands for trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. So I trusted my students. I respected their ideas, no matter how crazy they are. And I can tell you, teenagers have a lot of crazy ideas. And I gave them a lot of independence. I collaborated instead of dictating. And I always treated them with kindness. And so that's what drew hundreds of kids in the program. And uh, I started in 1984. And then I retired in uh, June of 2020. And in that time, so of course there's these 700 kids, but they also built an incredible building for the program uh, at 25,000 square foot media arts center. It's the largest one in the nation for high school journalism program. So that's the story in a nutshell.
0: That's incredible. And actually, you preempted a couple of questions I was going to ask, for example, your approach to teaching and how do you grow a program from 20 students to hundreds. And now alumni wise, what do you estimate like at least a couple thousand, five,
1: 10,000? Thousands. Well, my Facebook is full. I've got 5,000 friends who can't have any more. <laughs> I would say thousands of them are my former students and they're friends. It's just incredibly rewarding to be in touch with kids that were in my program, you know, back in the 1980s. And a lot of them are in very significant journalism roles, you know, editors or important writers for a variety of publications, or I have a, a lot of CEOs or people in medicine, honestly, and they keep in touch, which is one of the things that are so exciting. So I know everybody is mad at Facebook for a variety of reasons, but I'm really happy because I get to keep in touch with all my former students. For me, it's great.
0: Well, there's a lot of threads I'd love to pull here. I mean, the first being it's a good transition to what you're doing at Tract, not only because I think last I saw the CEO that you brought in to help you with Tract is a former student of yours, but also because this is a scalable extension of clearly what's a passion of yours, which is empowering young students to create, to not just consume content. So can you tell us a bit more about TRACT, what got you into it, what your goals are with it, et cetera?
1: Right. So TRACT is a really exciting platform for kids. I came together with this former student of mine in June of 2020. So I decided to retire of course, I was a little sad about retiring, but I realized that the pandemic was not the flu and it was gonna go on for a bit longer, and I just did not want to be teaching in that environment. And so it turns out at the same time, this former student of mine had been at Uber, and he decided, well, the scooter division isn't gonna be going anywhere that in this moment. I think I'm gonna resign. And because he was head of that division, he was in the leadership role. And I thought, this is like the heavens saying to us, it's an opportunity for you to create an online program that is going to do the same thing, at least I'm hoping will do the same thing that my in-person program did at Palo Alto High School. And so he understood everything that I did because he was in my class for two and a half years. His name is Ari Memar. We started it in uh, June of 2020, we actually launched In the schools, which is where we were hoping to launch in just March of this year. And it's growing really well. We already have thousands of kids, hundreds of schools. We'd love to have more schools, more teachers. My goal is to help every single kid out there feel better about themselves and be able to study and engage with other kids. So it's peer-to-peer, it's project-based. And it's gamified. So we're trying to make it so it's really engaging. But it's also the goal is to help kids understand that they are smarter than they think they are. And they should not worry so much about all those grades and other things that people are putting on them that make them feel somehow less empowered. If they want to, they can go to, or the teachers can go to TRACT, teach dot track dot app. Sorry, I'll say that again, teach.track.app. Parents can also sign up. We charge a small amount for them to have monthly access to everything. It's $20 a month for everything. But for teachers, it's free because my goal is to empower kids and to help teachers do project-based learning in the classroom. And they don't have to do any professional development. They don't have to do anything. All they have to do is give the kid a Chromebook or a computer, say, go to track.app, turn it on and find something that you want to do. And you can work with your friends or you can work with other kids online, whatever you want to do. And the goal, as I said, is to empower kids, especially in this pandemic, where they have been an incredible uh, absence of peer-to-peer relationships. And so what can we do to help them feel more empowered and better about themselves? So that's what I'm doing with TRACT. And we'd love to have as many kids as possible. There's no requirements for setting it up. Somebody said, well, don't they need any training? I was like, well, do they need any training to go onto YouTube? Well, that's about the same amount of training you need to go onto TRACT. None. That's the goal, is helping kids be the best they can be.
0: Yeah, and when we were speaking about it, I remember kind of your vision for it and where it's been going is there are some students who are, they're learning by teaching, right? And that's a theme of any becoming a journalist, like to write something, to create something, you have to know what you're talking about. And, you know, you're starting to pull in these threads and ask more questions and answer these questions, which is where good product comes from whether it's a video you create or like a subscription newsletter if the students are using Substack. You said also that you're very interested in getting these students, some of them to create health and wellness content. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because a lot of our learners are in those professions.
1: Thanks for reminding me about that. That is absolutely one of the most important things because this is learning. It's peer-to-peer online learning. So the learning is created by kids 15 and above, 15 to 25 or whatever. Four kids, eight to 14. We're taking upper elementary, middle school kids and helping them learn about whatever it is they're interested in. But we're taking the above 15-year-olds and helping them be creators. And when you are a creator, when you learn how to teach something to someone else, you're also learning leadership skills. And this is probably the most effective way to learn to be a leader online. Actually, I don't know of any other way because what I did in my classes is give kids opportunity to be a leader. The the whole program was led by students for students. The editors were, there were five of them. They led a publication. One of them, for example, had 70 kids. 28 pages, full-size newspaper every three weeks, all done by kids. And so why didn't I do it? Because I know how to do it, but by giving them the responsibility and the opportunity, they're developing their leadership skills. And so that's what the same thing is happening on track, giving these young people an opportunity to teach. They start off as beginners, then intermediate, then advanced, and once they reach an advanced level of teaching, we pay them, actually. We want to compensate them. Maybe not the three cents that I earned, <laughs> but we, we pay them, you know, enough so that they can say that they're earning something. And we'd love, absolutely love to have creators on any kind of scientific issue, biology, physics, chemistry, anything that people want to do on there. The kids love doing it. And they love doing it because they get to pick it. There's nothing like having agency to make you want to do something. You know, if you're told to do something, even if it's fun, like eat that chocolate chip cookie, you know, you won't want to do it. It's like, no, I'm not going to eat that cookie.
0: Totally relatable.
1: (laughs) But if you're given an option, would you like a cookie or would you like ice cream or what would you anyway? Then of course you want to eat not only one, but 10. And so yes, you want to give kids an opportunity to be in the driver's seat, to be in control. So yes, I'd love to have creators from this community and they can go actually easily online, create.tract.app So the more We have the better we are and the more opportunity the users have to learn things that are important, important to them. Some of the things that kids have come up with are just they're kind of mind blowing. I must say the cutest one that we have is a kid from New Zealand who did a learning path on how to take care of your lamb because he has a whole bunch of lambs. He takes care of a whole flock. And then he showed pictures of a baby lamb and how to take care of it. It was incredible. He's 10 years old as a creator. So that is the kind of thing that, you know, we'd like to encourage all kids. Anything they're interested in, we'll take.
0: I love that yeah not just to consume but to create and in the process become teachers i mean that's very near and dear to my heart and, and our heart at osmosis the reason we called it osmosis the actual company is called knowledge diffusion is because we realized as med students we were learning as much from our classmates as we were from our professors so peer-to-peer teaching is really important we encourage our audience and we'll put this in the show notes uh, we have a lot of students in that age range who come to osmosis who are obviously interested in clinical careers or science careers. Who can use osmosis or use their own resources to then become teachers on track or creators on track? We'd highly encourage that.
1: Right. Well, we'd love to include them. And then also, their byproduct is they learn to be leaders. And it's so important, you know, being a good teacher, being able to explain things to people, being able to empower others. Those are the characteristics of really good leaders. And one of my statements or one of the things that I agree with is that good leaders for the 21st century are those that empower the best in others. If you surround yourself with other people who feel empowered and who are in the same trajectory as you are helping with whatever goal you have, you're going to do a much better job, whether it's a product or a service or just education, whatever it is.
0: Totally. I can't agree with you more. And so Speaking of problems or opportunities for the 21st century, you know, the other thread I want to pull on with your unique background, both as a journalist and then an educator is obviously we have a crisis of misinformation in the 21st century with regards to COVID and and health information, but all sorts of information, fake news. You have a personal interest in helping promote literacy, uh, journalistic integrity, Um, and then also given your family, you know, the great stance it seems YouTube took just in the last two weeks about banning misinformation around the vaccines uh, on their site. I can't imagine what dinners at your household are like talking about journalistic integrity and battling fake news, especially given Janet's connection as a clinician herself. Can you tell us a bit more about how we can get out of this morass of misinformation? What are your suggestions for that and anything you want to comment about social media as well?
1: I think the one thing that all the listeners should understand, and I think everybody does is that. The most powerful influencers today are on social media. They're more powerful than any other people, you know, in the past 50 years. Social media influences the way we think and the way we live our lives. So I personally think that social media and media literacy is probably one of the most important things that can be taught in the schools. And I would like to suggest, and I work with a group called National Association of Media Literacy, and they are trying to implement media literacy in all schools. So how is media created? Kids don't know. And it's kind of like at the beginning of the 19th or 20th century, how would it have been if we just gave people cars and just said, hey, guys, just go drive, you know, there should be some education we have driver's ed we have all these how to do it intelligently how about doing something for media literacy how are stories written what are sources what are good sources you know how the whole thing is put together most people don't know Mm -hmm. the number one thing people don't know which is kind of mind-boggling is what is the difference between fact and opinion Like, how could you not know? But a lot of people don't know. So can we teach this? It's kind of like civics should be taught in all schools. Everybody should know what media literacy is, how to protect yourself online and so forth. And with regard to today, I would say the main way to distinguish a fake news source from a real news source is the media outlets, the ones that are the big ones those are most likely the places you're going to find the real news. So the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the LA Times, you know, your local newspaper that is actually dedicated to providing news, they are going to check and recheck all their sources. I am on the advisory board for the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. And this is one of the things that we are trying to do is to make sure that Everybody knows that the legitimate sources of news are governed by a philosophy of making sure the news is checked. And you should stop believing all these outlets that are, they name themselves crazy things. There was one that was called USA Today, but it didn't have calm at the end. It was USA Today, and they changed the ending world or something. And people don't pick that up. And they'll think, oh, it's USA Today, but it's not USA Today. So you have to be really careful where you're getting your news. There are some right-wing sources that are doing things that I would say are objectionable. And I don't wanna get political here, but I would say that you definitely need to check and make sure that they're using appropriate sources. And one of the things that some right-wing groups are doing is they have a little phrase. You should look for this phrase. The little phrase that says, some people say, and then they go into, a some people say whatever. If they start with that phrase, some people say, you should be suspicious right away that it's not news. It is something they've conjured up, something that is fake. It's very important for people to be suspicious online, because without that little suspicion, you might believe something like, you know, they've discovered a cure for cancer and just click here and you'll get it. So be careful.
0: Absolutely. And that translates not just to how people, you know, whether or not they for example, get a vaccine or wear masks, what what they believe, but also, you know, what we're seeing in Silicon Valley right now, case I'm sure you're very familiar with because a journalist at the Washington Post, John Kerry, who helped bust it open is the Elizabeth Holmes trial and what's fake there. And so it's really an interesting time to be alive because anyone can claim different things and it's up to the journalist really to help trace what's real, but then people to then be literate enough to know what to trust, as you just indicated.
1: That is so important. So, journalists play the most critical role today. I mean, they should be considered heroes instead of what's going on because Thomas Jefferson, years of course, centuries ago, said that the most important part of a democracy are the journalists, the people who can inform you and help you make intelligent decisions. Without journalists, you cannot make decisions and you will not have the information that you need. And that's why it's so important. I mean, thank heavens the Nobel Committee recognized those two journalists for the Peace Prize. I think you've seen that, or did you not see that? Was
0: it just announced this week? I haven't uh, kept up to date.
1: Just announced this week. And they were recognized with the Peace Prize, Nobel Peace Prize. And I think it represents journalists everywhere because these people are busy trying to tell you what is really going on. And to treat them so poorly, is just, it is awful. It really needs to be rethought. They are trying to help you make intelligent decisions and intelligent choices about the world that you live in. So, but please go to the legitimate news sources. Don't go to the ones that have really unusual urls because they're not legitimate sorry to say and don't get your news on facebook and don't get your news on twitter oh my god
0: (laughs) it's amazing we have to say this but uh, i want to be respectful of your time because i know we're coming up on it but you know i have two final questions for you if you're okay with that yeah i'm fine The first is obviously you've been a journalist your life and then you recently wrote this book on parenting and a lot of our teammates were excited to hear that I was speaking with you because so many of them are parents and our audience has a lot of them. You know, what advice, I know you aren't super prescriptive with your advice, but just like you have trick in terms of how you teach, that acronym you shared earlier in this interview, what are some of the big takeaways you would have as a a mother and someone who's been very successful at raising uh, some very impressive children?
1: So the trick. Acronym works for parenting also. And what I did with my children is I tried to, I had just one goal when they were little because there were no books out that I could read. It just didn't work. All the other advice, main thing was Dr. Spock, and he told you how to take your temperature and all the other stuff. But I trusted them early trust, respect, independence, collaboration, kindness. So I never spoke to them in baby talk. I always talked to them like they were grown up. It's kind of crazy. And I remember when I would go with them to the supermarket and I was talking to them. They used to have infant seats back then. They were parked in their little infant seat. And I remember I saw all these women. They were like thinking I was crazy, this woman talking to a baby. But I did. And then I did it all along as they got older, I trusted them early on to be able to do things quickly early. And I I guess one of my goals was how soon could I teach somebody something? I always had that experimental mindset. And so I taught my daughters to swim very early because we had a swimming pool. I wanted to make sure they didn't have a problem. I taught them to ride a bike early. I think they were all riding bikes at the age of three you know, I basically taught them how to function pretty well in the house, you know, how to make their breakfast really early. And my thinking on that was, I'm making them feel confident about the world they live in. And, you know, breakfast were really simple, you know, pour your own cereal, pour your own milk and things like that. But turns out an 18 month old can do that. If you believe in them. And then I gave them a lot of early responsibilities around the house. You know, people kept thinking that, oh, maybe you're forcing your kids to work. I looked at it as I'm giving you this opportunity to help out. So they were always cooking early, cleaning early. They were cleaning up the family room. That was not considered a punishment. It was considered just part of the team. And I remember in this pandemic, that Susan did the same thing with her kids. I thought it was pretty funny. I never said a word. So, um, you know, cause they couldn't have any of the house help that they normally had. So the kids were, they were doing the laundry, they were doing the dishes. The five-year-old was in charge of vacuuming. She had a vacuum. She would, it was one of those vacuums with just a battery. It had no cords and you would come in the house and she would show you where she was vacuuming. I mean, it works. And the kids feel like they're part of the team instead of disempowered. So that's what I would suggest for all parents. Have your kids, have them help you make dinner. Have them help you plan what you're going to be doing this weekend. You know, have them do things that you normally would just think I have to do it. They can actually do it. I took my students to New York on trips, went on for 16 years to for a week in New York City. And these were teenagers, you know, 15 to 18. I had them plan the itinerary. It's like, what are we doing when we're in New York? How do you do it? Not only did they plan it, they were so good at it that if I got lost, they were able to tell me, this is the direction you're supposed to go, not there, whatever. But yeah, kids are more capable than you think they are, and they believe in themselves when you believe in them.
0: I love that, that's really empowering. And again, a theme that runs through you as a parent, you as a teacher, you as a journalist, et cetera. So again, aware of your time. My last final question is, what advice would you give to our audience about meeting the challenges of the COVID pandemic and beyond, keeping in mind that many of them are clinicians, scientists, public health professionals, et cetera?
1: So I think the main message is that, Instead of looking at the pandemic, the 18 months we've had as a loss, the learning loss, I said, look at it as opportunity for kids to have learned something else, to have learned how to cope in a difficult situation, learned how to think about the world differently, learned how to be on a Zoom call that they might not like. But this is one of the things that I think is really important for us to realize the way we think about what happens to us or happened to us determines how we feel about ourselves and about the world. There's nothing we can do about what happened, but what we can do is we can adjust how we react to what happened is what's important, and that is our power how we can adapt to what happened to us. And so I think we need to think about that and hopefully things will improve, but we need to take advantage of the situation as it is and see what we can say about it that is positive.
0: It's very stoic. I love that. Great concluding thoughts of wisdom. And Esther, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. And more importantly, for the work that you've done to promote literacy for your entire career, journalistic integrity, and then to make people creators, which I think is at the core of the work you do.
1: Well, thank you again for this wonderful interview. And I'm happy, really happy that I ran into you by accident at the ASU conference. (laughs)
0: Likewise. With that, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care. I'm Shivaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels.